Good morning. The reading this morning is from the Dynamic Laws of Prayer by Catherine Ponder. There is a certain indescribable fascination about prayer, an unforgettable, irresistible quality, an exuberant and excellent feeling that draws you back to it again and again. As you turn within to its power more and more, you discover you are carrying within your own being a portable paradise which you can contact anytime, anywhere, regardless of what is happening around you. There's a quaint saying among the Pennsylvania Dutch, the hurrieder I go, the behinder I get. Prayer slows you down to get real traction. Prayer gets you in the mood to receive good. Prayer gives you a taste of heaven and it tastes good. The word heaven means expansion, and the practice of prayer expands both you and your good. St. Francis of Assisi, who loved to pray in a cave, described prayer as a heavenly sweetness. Your soul gets twisted out of shape when you battle life, people, circumstances. Prayer takes away your spirit of fuss, gives you a gentleness of pace, One of the most obvious signs of a person who prays is the quiet way he is able to maintain his equilibrium in the grip of circumstances until those circumstances finally lose their grip on him. One cynic has said, there is nothing so unattractive as a prayerless woman. Allow me to be more cynical. There is nothing so unattractive as a prayerless person because his prayerlessness has a demagnetized in him into the blessings of his life. When you pray your quiet mind, body, emotions, and vibrations, prayer gives you a sense of peace and tranquility that are attracting powers. In one way or another, prayer makes you first more attractive and then gets busy attracting good to you. Yes, prayer makes you irresistible to your good. And now I'd like to introduce our irresistible spiritual director, Reverend Patrick Cameron. Hello, hello. I guess I am on. Oh, there we are. Good. Welcome. So I'm going to invite you, if you're here for the first time, I am Patrick Cameron, and it is my delight and honor to be with you today. Today. I'd like to invite you, if you'd like to, uh, stand with me and we'll sing a song and say a prayer. And please stay seated. If you're here for the first time, it's, this is optional, but if uh, you'd like to stand, many people do, while we say our prayer. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, There's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear. For spirit, one spirit is in this very room 
this very room in this very room so I invite you to know with me as we activate this law of mind by speaking our word and so our affirmative prayer this day as we come together is a recognition of that one life, that one power, and we claim that life as our own. And in claiming that and choosing that, it chooses us. And so I know for myself, I open my heart and my mind to that divine impress, that flow of life in this moment, that life-affirming, life-giving, life-inspiring, divine flow, moving in and through and as all of life. And as we open to it, as we turn to it, I know that whatever questions we have, whatever opportunities we seek, whatever chaos or confusion may be in our thinking, the clarity, the insight and the awareness, and the intuitive knowing as well as the intellectual process that leads us to the most effective way to be on this planet each and every moment reveals itself. And so I stand in that certainty, I stand in that knowing with you, I give thanks knowing the blessings of this day reveal themselves to each and every one of us in the right and perfect way. For this I give thanks, knowing that our gathering today is a success, that the love that we represent reaches out into this community and wherever it is needed, it finds its way there to remind people at a very deep level of how loved, how honored, how cherished they are, as are we. For this I give thanks, and together we say, and so it is. Please be seated. Thank you. So here we are. We're, uh, we have some books for everyone today. We, we have, uh, when Reverend Catherine had mentioned our book of the year, it's, we have books of the month. This is a book that we, uh, we select and give to our membership. So if you haven't received one yet, please come up after the service and, and take a book. And if <clears throat> the books are gone and you're not here next week, but you would, wouldn't, wouldn't matter to you because you're here this week, that's, that's the end of it. We've had people come in after they, I heard a book I'd given away. I didn't get my book. I said, well, you know what? Consciousness prevails. Should have been here. <laughs> so if you snooze, you lose, basically. So I, I want to share with you some ideas today that I think are a, a nice place for us to uh, tie in with Catherine Ponder's work. And I, I'm borrowing a bit from Tony Robbins today. He, he had, I caught him on, uh, at TED this week, and he had some great things to say. And I thought, you know, I can really work that, that his ideas into my story this week. So I wanted to share with you. And, and Tony says that effective leadership, and we're all leaders in our lives. I mean, it's not about someone, you know, a political figure or someone in a society leading. We're all, we all need to lead in our lives. But effective leadership is, is the ability to consistently move oneself and others into action understanding the invisible, the invisible laws that shape our lives. Effective leadership is the ability to consistently move yourself and others into action based on the invisible laws that, that shape our lives. And so really what we talk about in spiritual principle are laws, and we're very much invested in that, in this dynamic law of, of possibility and creativity. We activate these laws through our spoken word, and though we, we, we call it affirmative prayer. So our prayer is not a form of begging or pleading or trying to manipulate it. It's affirming what, what the, the experiences we'd like to have in our lives and working with that idea until things start to shift and change. And so for all of us, there's, there's two primary things to master as we look at life and, and to look at where, how our lives are shaped. I mean, all of, our, all of us have lives that are shaped in certain ways. And I think to understand that and have insight into that really gives value to how we operate and how we activate the laws that we talk about. And so 
the two ideas that, to master, and I think this, this is a pretty good vocabulary for this. There's two areas to master while we're here. One is achievement. One is the idea that we, 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 we move out into the world. I mean, everybody made it here today. Everyone is dressed nicely. Everyone got transportation here. There's a, there's a level of achievement there that, that is obvious. I mean, for some people, that would be a, a challenge. For many of us, it's no problem. We don't even consider it a challenge. But there's, and there's levels of achievement in our lives. The homes we live in, the cars we drive or don't drive, the relationships, and all those things are physical things that we achieve. But beyond that, and most people are at that level. I mean, I think most of our classes, when we get into classes, it's about finding jobs and it's about finding the RPM, the right and perfect mate, finding the, uh, the, right, the, the right amount of money and you know, all of those things. And it's good, to, it's good to have those things as opportunities in our lives because it gives us some way to keep track of how we're doing. And the other one, beyond that, the other place to master is fulfillment. And fulfillment is a little more elusive. I watch people use these principles throughout their life and at some point in time it clicks in. Hmm. I got this, and I got that, and I got this, but it's just kind of empty. And so fulfillment, I think, is an art, and it's really about appreciation. Fulfillment is really about appreciation. It's really about contribution as well. And so when you have achievement married with fulfillment, it's quite a potent and wonderful combination. And I think it's available and possible for all of us. And that's why the, the, the clarifying of consciousness, because it's based on decisions. You and I make decisions. And all of us are shaped in some way by there's six there's six um, needs. There's six, as Tony would call them, six needs. And so I'll use his vocabulary today. The first need is certainty. We need certainty in our lives. If you come to, to the service and, and your concern is that the, the ceiling is going to collapse at any moment, you're probably not going to pay a lot of attention to what I have to say. You're probably going to be looking up and listening. Uh, it, you know, if you, um, and we see that with certain people. There are people that develop certain decisions and certain conditions in their lives where they don't want to go out anymore because there's certain phobias around things or people develop certain, certain uh, suspicions or fears about things. But So certainty is important. We need to have some certainty in our lives. But what happens when all we have is certainty? If you were here at the first service, don't, don't yell it out. But what happens when we're certain of everything? When we move along and we know exactly how the story is going to end, we know exactly how we're going to be from beginning, middle, and end to where we are now, what happens for us? Anybody? Boredom. We get bored. Peace. <laughs> Peacefully bored. <laughs> but it's boring. So cert but certainty is important, a certain level of it. But we need, we need the, the second one is uncertainty. We need a certain level of uncertainty in our lives. Because there, there's surprises. How many people here love it, the uncertainty of life? How, much, how many people enjoy the uncertainty of life? Oh, yeah. Sure you do. <laughs> sure. When it's a surprise, but not when it's a problem. But see, in the infinite's wisdom, in the infinite's wisdom, she decided we needed these problems. Because it's what we, we, we rub our, ourselves against. It's how we grow. It's the friction. So the uncertainty is important because you get up in the morning, you set out in a certain direction, and then things happen. And it's uncertain at times. And so what we, and how we're wired and how we're, uh, how we're uh, sort of tripwired to respond to that is interesting. Because I think what happens for us when we come into this teaching is, as, as our, we get clarity in our thinking and in our ways of, of living, that trip wiring no longer is as readily set off by the uncertainty of life. But there's things that happen. where We get into relationships with people and they do things we weren't expecting. We, we, we take jobs, we take responsibilities on, all of those things, but it creates the uncertainty. The third one is significance. We'd all like to have significance in our life. We'd like to have meaningful things. Some people do it through spirituality. 
Some people became, become very spiritual, and that's their path. They, become, they find the significance with that. Or they, they want a lot of money. The fastest way in our culture to gain significance, the fastest way, the most readily available, is through violence. If you live in the hood, and you own a gun, and you're willing to use that gun, you're significant. People know who you are. And I'm not encouraging that, but it's an example of how some people decide they're going to be significant because it's the only, it seems to be the only apparent path available. If we look at the terrorists that, we're, we're, that are on our planet now, these are young men for the most part that are told that, you know, you strap a bomb onto yourself and you take others with you because they're infidels. There's great significance in that. You'll be honored in heaven and all these promises are made. But it gives us some insight, not that I'm approving of that, but it gives us some insight how people can make those choices, how, how strongly we're driven by certain choices and significance is very important. The, the fourth one is love and connection. To have love and, and connection. How many people here have ever been in love? Have you, have you ever been disappointed by love? Anybody? <laughs> couple, couple, couple. There's a guy back there I know has. There we go. Thanks for your participation. But what happens for us, most of us have this idea of love where we have the experience of love and then it goes sideways. It doesn't turn out the way we think. And so what we do from that point forward for a number of people I've talked to is we settle for connection. But we need to have some type of connection. We need to have some form of love. And it may not be love. It might just be that connection. You know, I have people that come in and I'll say, what do you, you know, I'm looking for the right and perfect mate and can you help me? And let's do some affirmative prayer and I'll borrow your consciousness to help bring that into my experience. What are you looking for? What are the qualities? Well, you know, just a really, really good mate, you know, a good pal. All right, well, it's connection. I wouldn't consider it a deep form of love, but, you know, I mean, we all, we all have those experiences, and then we, we choose as we go along. And it, it takes an incredible amount of grounding in our being, I think, to, to, to have that full-orbed experience of love, that unconditional love. And it, it takes, I think you don't, I don't think we were born into it. I think we learn into it. I think by life experiences, we learn into it. And the last two of these that are the things that our needs, basic needs, are growth and they're spiritual, the last two. The first four are, are, uh, are um, personal. You know, getting back to, to um, significance, many people think that if they gather enough money, they'll be significant. Have enough money, everything will be good, and you'll, be, you'll have that significance in your life. And I received a parable this week that I thought really reflected what's happening on the planet around this, um, this bailout that's going on in the United States and the economic downturn and the sort of spiraling. So I want to share it with you. So there was a a village, and it was just full of monkeys. There were monkeys everywhere. And so this, this entrepreneur came into town, and he looked around, and he said, hmm, a lot of monkeys. So he decided he would invite everybody in the village to gather up as many monkeys as they could, and he would pay them $10 a piece for monkeys. So everybody's excited, because monkeys are everywhere. They're like leaves on the street, and they're, they're gathering monkeys and catching them and gauging them, and, and these big cages are built, and they, the man pays $10 for the monkeys. And everybody's excited, because there's a new industry in town. And so a month goes by and they've caught a lot of monkeys. He says, you know what? They're getting a little harder to find. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you $20 now for monkeys. It's amazing. So everybody's gathering monkeys everywhere. Pretty soon there's not a monkey to be found. They're all locked up in the cage. The guy says, wow, this is, this is, this is going really well. And I thank you all for your participation. He says, I'll tell you what, I know they're really scarce. It doesn't look like there's many, many more monkeys around, but I will give you $50 for every monkey you can bring to me. And people are like looking everywhere for a monkey and nobody can find a monkey. So anyway, the man lays that deal out on the table and everybody's scouring the countryside for more monkeys at $50 a piece. And he says, you know, I need to go away on some business, so I'm going to leave my, my assistant here. I'm going to leave my assistant Greg in charge of the monkeys. 
And so he said, if you find any more, come to Greg with the monkeys, and he'll give you 50 bucks for every monkey. So he leaves town, and Greg's sitting around there, and he's watching everybody scurrying around looking for monkeys, and he said, uh, tell you what, I got an idea. Here's what we do. He said, I will sell you back these monkeys for $35 a piece. And everybody goes, this is awesome. And he said, and when my boss comes back, let's call the boss Patrick. When Patrick comes back, <clears throat> you sell them to him for 50 <laughs> Oh, this is fantastic. So everybody goes and they empty out all their savings. Up to, the, to, up to $700 billion, everybody pulls out their savings. And they give this guy the money and they all buy the monkeys back at $35 a piece. And wouldn't you know it that Greg and Patrick never were seen again. All that was left was a bunch of monkeys. And I think it's a great parable about what's happened with the financial markets. That, you know, there's inflated value on things. But many people, we get caught up in this trap of their significance with the, with the value. And there's nothing wrong with, with money. There's nothing wrong with, with, you know, money is God in action, if that's the consciousness we use it from. But for many people, it becomes the end because it's significance. So I mentioned this idea of the fifth one being growth. The fifth one is spiritual. It's growth. That we're here to grow. We're here to develop. Why grow? Why grow? I can't figure it. Anybody be able to figure this out? Why grow? We grow so we can give. We grow so we develop our skills. We grow, develop our talents so we can give. See, we are created in the image and likeness. Look around nature. Do we have a lack of snow or ice right now? I was skating over here this morning, as a matter of fact. <clears throat> but but we, we grow so we can give. And the sixth one is contribution. We want to contribute far beyond what we can do individually. But it really is the purpose. You know, a year ago I said that the, the purpose of life, the meaning of life is to discover our gifts. The purpose is to give our gift away. It's the same thing. We're here to grow and grow in our gifts so that we can then contribute beyond what we, we are capable of doing. And so what inspired this whole thing around the six things, the two things to master, achievement, fulfillment, certainty, uncertainty, significance, love and connection, growth, contribution... I've been reading a book for about a month called The Three Cups of Tea, and it's by Greg Mortensen, and it's an amazing book. This man is incredible. This man is a, I went out, at, after the first service, uh, someone came up to me and said, you know, we should bring him to Edmonton. We should bring this guy. To, and I'm going to tell you a little bit of his story. I'm probably going to have to tell you the rest of the story next week because I, I didn't have time this morning, and I want to honor our time. But this, this man was born in Minnesota, um, where I was, so I have a, a real, I said, hey, guy, fellow Minnesotan, and he, he moved to Tanzania with his family at a very early age. And his family became um, sort of missionaries, in a sense. They built a school there, and they built a, a medical clinic, hospital, and a school. And he grew up in an environment where there are 25 different nationalities and religions mixed in with what he was doing as a kid. So he, his, his early conditioning was one of a, a citizen of the world. And so he, he grew up, and he, he could speak Swahili fluently, moved back to Minnesota, got his butt kicked in high school because everybody said he's African, and here's this great big tall white dude speak Swahili, and, and he had everybody pounding on him because he wasn't African and he, he wasn't really, he didn't fit in. But anyway, he, he got through all that, he survived, and big guy, he, he went to Carleton College, which I played football in, in university against a Carton, called Carleton College, easy for me to say. But anyway, he played football there, big guy, six foot five and, and uh, uh, very tall, and he got into mountain climbing. He got into mountaineering, and what he did is he, he got his nursing degree, and he got a degree in, in uh, I believe it was psychology or medicine of some sort, but he got his degree, and he decided he moved to San Francisco, and he would, his whole life was dedicated to learning how to climb. 
And so one of the things about being a nurse is he had the medical skills. So these elite groups of climbers, and he was quite adept physically as well, would bring him along on these expeditions because he had the skills. Something went wrong up on the mountain at, at you know, 14,000 feet. Here's a man that could probably help save a life. So he, he had opportunities based on his early conditioning as well as he's, he was a citizen of the world. He, and his sister passed away unexpectedly. She died very early in her 20s. Uh, she had diabetes and she finally couldn't, her body just couldn't uh, survive anymore with the diabetes. So in tribute to her, and he was very nurturing to his sister. He just loved his sister and adored her. He had two other sisters, um, but this younger one passed away. And so in tribute to her, he, he was invited on this expedition in Pakistan to, to K2, which is the second tallest mountain on the planet. And at K2, they got 600 yards within the top. And he had his sister's necklace. And his goal was to set that necklace on top of the mountain in tribute to his sister. 600 yards, and one of the guys, one of the climbers, started to suffer from altitude sickness. The brain swells up, and it's really severe, and you've got to get people down off the mountain as soon as possible. So he and another climber spent the next 75 hours getting this man down to save his life. He's 600 yards from setting that necklace there. He gets down, and he's, his guide takes off, guiding him back to the base camp. And he's so tired now, he hasn't slept in days. He hasn't eaten anything in days. And he's disoriented and he's dehydrated. And he starts down the valley and he misses the turn. The guide assumes it's so well marked he'll see it. He misses the turn. He walks another 58 miles to get to a village. He walks in, he's just about dead. And the villagers welcome him. They're all Muslim. And the villagers all welcome him. They nurse him back to health. They give him everything they have. He had no clue. They were giving him all the sugar they had. They were giving him as much food as they could because they lived on very little. A village named Corfi. And he spent time with these people as he got stronger. And he said, he looked around and he realized that the tribute that he could pay to his sister was, the necklace was was lovely, but to, to, in memory of her, to build a school for these people and to thank them for their generosity because he knew he'd be dead if it hadn't been finding this village and these people's generous spirits. Giving beyond, contributing beyond what seems reasonable. And so he came back to the United States, he went back to San Francisco, he got rid of his apartment, he slept in his car, and he had a storage unit where he stored his clothing, he took his showers at the YMCA, and he wanted to raise money to build the school, and he figured he needed $12,000 to build this school in Pakistan. And so he, wrote a, he, he got on a, a typewriter and he wrote 580 requests to famous people. Dear Sylvester Stallone, I am going to build a school in Pakistan. Could you help me financially? 580 letters later, he got one donation of $100 from Tom Brokaw, who had gone to the same university as he. And so he realized, you know, I've got to find a better way to do this. His mom is, teaches school in River uh, Falls, Wisconsin, which is very close to where I grew up and invited him to come and speak to her fourth grade class. And so he went and did a slideshow, talked about his experience, talked about how he wanted to build this school for these people. Now he's still sleeping in this car, he's still saving every nickel as a nurse. He's got about $2,400 of his own money saved up, but it's going really slow. And, and you know, as we get busy and people have passions in our lives, they come up to say, hey, I got this great idea. You know, it's, it's sometimes hard to get our attention because we're busy sometimes with our own significance. And sometimes when they ask, it creates uncertainty. <laughs> what are you going to do with the money? So anyway, he uh, went to this grade school and he talked, and this little kid comes walking up to him after the slideshow, and he says, you know what? He says, i got a piggy bank at home, and I'm bringing every penny I have tomorrow, and you can have it. So all these kids in the fourth grade class 
raised, with all their pennies, they went through the entire school actually and they invited people to participate, raised $637.27 in pennies. And he said it planted a seed with him. He realized, and even to this day, if you go on Greg Mortensen's website, Google three cups of tea, there's an area there for pennies, pennies for education, I think it's called. But anyway, he raised more money doing that than he had inviting 580 very wealthy people to participate. He got back to San Francisco and through the climbing community, they found out what he was doing. They found out what he wanted to do. And there was a man that's a philanthropist and a climbing uh, aficionado and supporter that lived in Seattle by the name of George Horn. I think I'm going to pronounce it that way. I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name, but Horn is close. And, and uh, so um, he called him one day out of the blue. He called Greg Mortensen and says, hey, I hear you're trying to build a school. He says, yeah, I am. He says, how much money do you need? He said, well, $12,000. He says, well, he said, uh, I, want to, I want you to take pictures and don't mess it up. He said, Okay, and he hangs the phone up. And he said, shortly thereafter, a check came in the mail. So he's very excited. He goes to Pakistan. He's got the money finally. He gets back to the village. There's a, quite a bit in the, in the book I'm skipping over. But he gets back to the village with the, the materials now to create this school. And the, the chief of the village says, well, we can build a school, but first we've got to build a bridge. Well, how much is that going to cost? It's about 10000 more. Oh, great. So back to the States, and he fundraises again, sleeping in his car, working these odd jobs, trying to find the purpose. But he's so driven. He's so passionate about this. Raises the money, goes back, builds the school, and builds the, uh, builds the bridge, builds the school. To this day, now, there's, this story is amazing. This man was there when 9-11 happened, when the planes flew into the buildings. And he was at a, he was at a celebration. They finally built the school. And what he said when, in, in, in education, what happens is, in these villages, if you can educate the girls, if you can get the girls educated, it changes everything. You educate the boys, they take off to the city to, to find their way and get a better job. They leave the village. The girls stay there. They raise the families. They're the next generation. And they have found that if you can get the girls through grade five, a grade five education for these girls, it changes everything. And so George Horn got the pictures just before he died. He says, damn it, I want to see the pictures because he was a crotchety old guy. But he was just so generous. And he said, I want to see the pictures. And so Greg went and nursed him in the hospital in Seattle. Or he was in uh, Idaho, I think, at a hospital, at a hospice ready to die. And he was so excited. He set up a foundation. It's called the Central Asian Institute, CAI. And he endowed it with a million dollars, which they went through like that once he started building the schools, once he started to find the inroads. But... The, the, the certainty that Greg had in his life was that he was a climber and he knew that, he knew that everyone, there's a oneness, there's a commonality to people that prepared him so well for this. The uncertainty, he had, he had tribes people that uh, basically put a reward out on his head that wanted to kill him because he's an infidel. How dare this Westerner come here and try and teach our kids? And I'm sure, you know, and, they, and so he was very clear about it. We're going to teach him the basics, reading and writing and mathematics. None of this Western... Uh, ideology. It's simply going to be education so these kids can, can pull themselves up. But he had death threats. He, had, he, was in, he went up to uh, uh, Waziristan, which is a very wild area, and he was, he was held for nine days. He said, I didn't know if I was going to get out or not. He stumbled in and these guys didn't know who he was. They held him for nine days. He came out. The conditions were terrible. And finally they realized who this guy was. He would go into the village. He had these nursing skills. They had people there with just terrible physical problems and he could help them. He nursed them back. These people just loved it. This year in 2009, he's been awarded the, the, the top honor uh, of Pakistan, called the Star of Pakistan in 2009. He will one day win the Nobel Peace Prize. To date, he has built 78 schools in Pakistan and in Afghanistan. When the 9-11 happened, he was there 
And he said, this village chieftain got up and he said, I, I want to apologize to you. And I want to apologize to Americans. We are not this. This is not what we stand for. This is a group of, of people that, that are radical in their approach. And he said, I apologize for this. And the, and the chief also looked at him and said, you know, I'm embarrassed as a leader of my people that someone had to come from another country, an American had to come here and help us build schools. Why haven't we done this for ourselves? I don't know. But it, his, his story is amazing. And it ties into that certi- the certainty and the uncertainty, the significance. And he's, he was propelled so much by this, this vision of, of giving more. He grew up in an environment where it was just natural to give, to develop, to grow, and then to be able, because he grew through this whole thing. He, you know, now he said, I would never go back and put myself in harm's way like I did and be incarcerated, be, be a, a prisoner for nine days. And in these horrendous conditions, we grow and we learn. And his journey was one of, of that, that growth and contributing beyond oneself and raising the money. He had people that say, come, I want to give you money. And this one old lady in the book, he talks about this elderly lady in the book. He flew down to Georgia. She said, I, I, you know, I'm thinking about giving you a million bucks because they went through the million-dollar endowment very, very quick. There was so much to do. There's such need. He got down there and he said he, he hung out with her like four or five days. She wanted to take him to the botanical garden and then take him for a ride in the country. And after three days, he realized all she wanted was some companionship. Never got any money, went home with nothing other than three days with this lady. But he, he got better at that. He realized that you know, he had to be discerning in terms of what he did and, and who he approached. He, eventually, his, the book was written and his story was placed on Parade Magazine, which is a big periodical Sunday magazine in the Sunday paper in the States, and it just exploded for him. And people now know who he is. But 78 schools later, risking his life, death threats, and working with his people. And he was there, as I said, 9-11. They said, you've got to get out of this country. They're going to kill you. You know, there's going to be a, a, a bounty on your head. And he said, no, I have schools that I need to check on. I have to go check on these schools to make sure they have the supplies and see what... If, they have what they need, because he just knew. He knew he'd be okay, he knew that he would be fine, even in this, this uh, tremendously uh, heated and hostile environment. It's an amazing, his, his story is so amazing, his commitment to give beyond himself. So today, you know, we're giving a few books away. We do this annually, we, we pick out a book at the beginning of the year where they think would be valuable for you to have in your book collection. We encourage you to read it. When you're done reading it, if it's appropriate, give it to somebody else. Because education is so important. Dr. Holmes said that to learn how to think is to learn how to live. This is exactly what Greg Mortensen is doing for these people in Pakistan. 78 schools. And what they do to help protect the schools, only one of his schools has ever been harmed by any of the Taliban or the Al-Qaeda. He goes into the villages and he gets their commitment that they'll donate the land. The village has to donate the land and the villagers have to build it. The villagers have to build it because then they take ownership. If, if Westerners go over and build a school, it doesn't mean as much to them as if they build it themselves. And he's built, and they're quite beautiful schools. You should see these things. There are pictures in the book, three cups of tea. But it's quite beautiful, and his work is ongoing. And so we were in Seattle this week. We went back down for the branding. We went down because we're, we're organizationally working with, the, with our greater organization and help roll out the new name, the new logo, uh, the new language that we like to use. And I was so inspired by this story, and I was so inspired by Kathy Ann Lewis. Kathy Ann Lewis is an amazing individual. She had a vision 10 years ago to build what she built today. They raised $17 million. They have a state-of-the-art facility that is, is just beyond compare. Uh, they have 1,200 seats. They do th- uh, two Sunday services now and a Wednesday night. We went to the Wednesday night service. 
And Kathy Ann, I, was ta- I sat next to Arlene Bump when I was down there because Arlene had flown in from Fort Lauderdale. Ar- Arlene was in, in Calgary. I, t- I talked about her last week. I told her, hey, you were part of my story this week. And she said, send me a CD. I said, I will, but I've got to listen to it again, make sure I got all the parts right, you know? <laughs> and uh, I, I, so I'm, I'm sitting next to Arlene, and we're at Kathy Ann. She said, Kathy Ann expressed this vision to me 10 years ago. And here it is. It's finally come into, to, she took it from the invisible to the visible. And it's an amazing facility, and it serves so many amazing needs. And we've talked about that. We've talked about where, where do we go? What's our next, you know, where's our direction to go? And, and that's a wonderful thing, and it's in, inspiring. Arlene also, I said, asked her, because Arlene's been around forever, I said, do you know Catherine Ponder? She goes, well, I met her when she was really old. I said, well, she's still alive, Arlene. What are you talking about? So anyway, but she said, she told the story. Um, Catherine Ponder talked about when she got her residual check, she wrote The Dynamic Laws of Prosperity. That was her first book. We used that book about two weeks ago, or t- yeah, about a month ago, and uh, as our book of the month. And uh, he, she said that when that book was published, Catherine Ponder went out and bought herself a Silver Star Rolls Royce. She always wanted this car, and she had enough money. She went and paid cash for the Silver Star Rolls Royce, Silver Cloud, and it was gray with a black um, convertible roof. And she called her friends and said, "Look, I got this car. I want to invite you all. We're going to go to this great restaurant in Palm Desert." which is right next to Palm Springs. And you're all invited. So they drive over there and they have this wonderful meal. She valet parks the car. They go in and eat. She comes out and she looks around and, and she hands the ticket to the valet, but she doesn't see her car. And uh, she looks over and the man had taken her car and parked it way in the back of the parking lot, way in the back. And next to it sat an identical silver cloud, same year, Rolls-Royce, same color, same top, everything, identical. And she looked at the guy and she said, why'd you park it way over there? And he said, well, I was hoping that they would, they would mate and reproduce. <laughs> but there's a guy with some vision. Huh? There's a guy with a bigger idea. We're in Seattle and Kathy Ann's talking about it. She said, you and your life, you and myself and, and, and our lives. Think of the, she called it the big, hairy, audacious idea. The biha. You got to have a biha and you put it out there. And so what, and that was what Kathy, that's what Kathy Ann had. And, and you see it bring it into to, to form, this biha, this big, hairy, audacious idea. Who, you know, to sit and say to some people, yeah, we're going to raise $17 million and build this great big facility. I mean, for, for many, it's like, that's not part of my significance. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty in that. What are you talking about? All those, all those qualities. Because how we're hardwired determines how we put a slant on life. See, if we're raised like Greg Mortensen, then we know that it's about growth and it's about contribution. You know, I mean, significance and, 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 and love and connection and all those things are important, but it's not, each one of us has one of those things number one on our list. You know, people that are great risk takers. You know, some people that want the same thing all the time, the certainty. How many people here rent the same movie over and over again and watch it? Anybody here rent the same story and watch it over and over again? Chris, Chris, get a life. You know the end of the story, but you like certainty. We love that. As kids, you know the book, we read it over and over again. I, my kids and I read the same story every night for months and months and months. Don't we know how this ends already? <laughs> Couldn't we try another story? But it's, it, it just, it's how we're hardwired. And once we have that awareness, it, it gives us an opportunity to understand, okay, there's my certainty showing up. There's my need for significance showing up. There's my need for love and connection. Whatever it is, because we got them all going. We just have one at the top of the list. And we, we know that about ourselves. It gives, us, it gives us more clarity and more awareness about how we can choose. And Kathy Ann did that. She says, you've got to have a biha. You put it out there. 
She did this wonderful mind mapping thing on Wednesday night at her service. She talked about you, you put that audacious idea out there and then you work yourself back to a, play, to a point on this and she had this circle in the middle with the mind mapping and these lines going everywhere then tributaries off the lines. And she said work it back, work it back, work it back, work it down in terms of qualities and, and things you can do. What can you do? Okay, so uh, $17 million facility. What do you do? Well, raise money. Okay, raise money down. What does it take to raise money? Grow the congregation. You know, get a bigger idea. This, this is the finally, you know, to, to the point where maybe it's the next thing to do on that list farther down is have a conversation with your current board of trustees. You can do that. It was a wonderful thing, but that idea out there pulls us forward. That idea pulls us forward out there. So a couple things occurred to me while I was gone. So what we're going to do this year is we're going to have every month, starting this month, we're going to invite a local charity or cause that we resonate with in. And once a month, we're going to bring them in, we're going to honor them, we're going to thank them, and we're going to support them financially. We're going to do it once a month this year because it's going to be part of our story and about what we stand for because if we're going to succeed and fulfill our dreams and what we're called to do, we need to start moving out in the community in a meaningful way. So that when people show up in three years, we can say, you know what? Three years ago, we decided to do this and step out, and as a result of that, this is part of our story. Not only are we a, a teaching and a community that believes in the best and the, and the highest possibility that everyone deserves a life that works for them, but we're putting our money where our mouth is, and we're supporting, we, and we've supported these 36 or these 48 or whatever it is. I just think that that is what we're being called to do. It's not simply about us sitting here and every week me saying to you, give us more, give us more, give us more. And every week, that expectation, it needs to be the reciprocity. And we have done that. We, we, we have been a tithing organization. But to get really direct about it and say, you know what, we love what you're doing. Thanks for showing up and doing that. It's powerful stuff because that is the true purpose of why we're here. We're here to grow and we're here to share. We're here to contribute. So we're going to do that. Thanks, Paul. But that's because of you. That's because of this community. And it's because of the opportunities. So I encourage you, when you leave here today, grab your book. It's exciting. This is an exciting teaching. We take, this, we take our community and our lives wherever we decide we're going to take them. And to have the information to say, you know what, this is, I'm stuck in, my, I'm, I'm stuck in, in uh, achievement right now. But I, I know that I'm moving into my achievement in, in greater ways and acquiring the things that allow me to grow and to be supported. Because it is opportunity. If you're busy working 90 hours a week, how much time do you have for spiritual practice? It's to live a life of balance. It's to li live a life of harmony so that, you are, so that your needs are met. And your needs are met and, and more than you can be of more value to the world. That's been my experience in my life. And I got to tell you, there was a time in my life when it was 90 hours a week of work and happy to get to the end of the month. And a lot of times I got to the end of the month, the money didn't get to the end of the month. So my whole meditation was about, oh, well, I got to get going. More, more, more. I need a fourth job. But we grow out of that if we're willing to step into it. We got to be willing. We got to be willing to look at it Look at it honestly and, and pull it close. So it's exciting. It's an exciting time to be alive. I, I, um, I'm very excited about the ideas that are showing up and the things that are shifting and changing for us. We are all powerful beyond our imagination. And the more clarity that we can ground ourselves in and the ability to put those things down, how we're hardwired and how we move out into the world without even thinking, that, slowly, that slows down. Prayer is a very powerful place and it's a very powerful practice as that reading articulated this morning. So I look forward to it. I look forward to this year. I look forward to see the, the, the various uh, opportunities for us to serve, to grow, to continue to grow, and to contribute. So blessings.